everyone, and welcome to the Research VR podcast. I am your host, Oz Balabanian, and today... Actually, let's do that one more time. I always miss the tagline. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Research VR podcast, the podcast about the science and design of virtual reality. Today, we have a special new guest. His name is Nick Levendach, the founder of 3D Scan Expert, who is a expert at 3D capture technologies and a consultant. Hi, Nick. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being on the show. And of course, our usual co-host, Peter Lekoff. Hi, Peter. Well, hello, everyone who's tuning in. So today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics. Um, if you've heard any of the previous episodes, this topic keeps coming up because it's something I'm very involved in. Uh, and it has to do with, with volumetric and photogrammetry and LiDAR capture. So basically anything that has to do with capturing the real world in full 3D and um, the various applications of that. And I think there's no better person to have on the show than than someone that runs a company called 3D Scan Expert. And uh, you deal a lot with these technologies. So actually, let me, perhaps let's, let's start with an overview of yeah. what are we talking about when we talk about 3D capture technology? Yeah, what, what I, um, I try to um, categorize 3D scanning into a few uh, like main technologies. Um, um, the, the one I started with uh, like two and a half years ago uh, was what I call uh, sensor scanning. So using depth sensors like the structure sensor, uh, in the real sense, orbit sensors, and all, all kinds of uh, portable uh, depth sensors uh, for 3D scanning. While they're actually not totally marketed at that purpose because they're marketed at, at tracking and stuff like that. So that's one thing, uh, depth sensor scanning. Um, then you have the more professional uh, 3D scanning equipment, uh, uh, like desktop 3D scanners that are usually like structured light scanners with a turntable and a tripod that you can use to scan small to medium objects. Then there are these handheld scanners that you can walk around with freely and uh, capture uh, stuff of all kinds of sizes. Um, then I... Uh, have a category uh, of photogrammetry that doesn't uh, that is essentially isn't three D scanning, but a form of three D capture that uses two D images uh, uh, and special software to generate three uh, D models. And uh, most recently, I've added uh, a new category to the to the list uh, that that covers everything uh, on smartphones. So mobile 3D scanning, if you want. And that, that can be everything, right? It can be um, photogrammetry-ish or AR-assisted stuff or depth sensors built into the, new, the latest iPhone. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I focus at. Uh, people often ask about uh, laser scanning uh, because I don't really uh, cover laser scanning at all. And I get a lot of questions uh, about when are you going to scan, test this scanner or that scanner, and either LiDAR scanners or handheld laser scanners. Because I tend to uh, test a, uh, a lot of uh, structured light stuff. But my criterion for testing stuff is that I need something to be able to capture color. And um, Okay, uh, so... Yeah. 
to, to get an overview, I guess, yeah. um, you clearly like there's multiple forms and different technologies that get used to capture things in, f in their full 3D form. So you're talking about everything from small, um, small objects, right? Uh, let's say either they're sculptures or action figures to, um, I don't know, mugs, cups. And, and uh, if we go a little bit bigger into scanning people, like yeah. actual, 3D humans, um, and then bigger than that into capturing interiors of rooms, of houses, of buildings. Yeah. And then the bigger scale of that is actual buildings, like from the exterior and perhaps the street itself and yeah. even like the city, you know, yeah. to the biggest form. Um, so all of this obviously like intersects with a lot of different industries. And so what are the main, I guess, with, with some of your clients and with some of the projects that you work on, what are the main industries do you see uh, already this technology being very relevant to? Um, yeah, the, the thing I try to focus on is uh, everything except for uh, engineering stuff and like construction stuff. So what, is, what does that everything mean? <laughs> yeah, it, it can be uh, the most exciting things essentially are the things we haven't even thought of. I, uh, the, the, the cool thing about doing this work is that I get questions every day from people that want to uh, use 3D capture for purposes that only they can think of because that's their area of expertise. That is their world. And it's not suitable for everything, but it's cool right. to uh, realize now that, that 3D capture is in people's mind as a possible tool in a toolbox for uh, creating content. And why do you actually uh, exclude construction and uh, industry from your clients? Um, yeah, the, uh, it, I think it has to do with my, uh, my background. Uh, a lot of people I meet in 3D scanning uh, have technical backgrounds and uh, engineering backgrounds. And I myself have a creative background. I started researching uh, 3D capture and 3D scanning uh, because I wanted to use it in my 3D animation work because that's my background. I, I've uh, worked as a 3D designer and motion designer uh, for the, the past uh, 11 years. Okay. Uh, so that's my background and I want to do uh, all kinds of stuff with 3D scanning. And when I started searching for 3D scanning, there was a lot of coverage about the uh, metrology aspects of it, right? Like the purely measurement use cases, like backwards engineering or scanning build sites. And there was a lot of information out there. So uh, I started to work on a niche within a niche. Mm -hmm that was uh, writing about uh, new, exciting and innovative ways to use 3D scanning where there wasn't uh, enough content written about. Yeah. What, what year, or around what year did you start um, the 3D scanning expert the consultancy and uh, what technologies existed around that time? So people, people think I've been doing this for like decades, but actually I've been doing this for, I think in total the last three years, uh, and uh, it actually started when I, uh, I got myself a structure sensor just to experiment with and discovered like, hey, I can use this in my creative projects. And, uh, but I, I found the quality a bit on the low side. So I wanted to, to know um, uh, what more there was. And I've, I have been using like the, the free apps that were available at that time, like one, two, three, catch from Autodesk mm -hmm. that has been pulled for mysterious reasons. 
<laughs> but um, I was testing with those very approachable ways of 3D capture. Uh, but I wanted more. Right. So that's why and I uh, started requesting all kinds of equipment to test and I started writing about it. So could you describe um, one of your work um, or w days or, or one of your clients or one of your typical exploration process? So does it start with a creative idea and you search for hardware and then you search for people who will be benefiting from it or how does it work? Uh, so yeah, I, I, um, I work for both sides of the spectrum essentially. I uh, get hired by uh, companies or individuals or uh, schools or whatever that uh, want to use 3D capture uh, to enhance their product or workflow or, or whatever they want. Uh, on the other side, I give uh, information to uh, developers of 3D capture software or uh, manufacturers of 3D capture hardware because I am very close to their target audience, uh, especially for um, manufacturers that have been out there for a while that have been focusing on the metrology aspects and that are now seeing that there is a wider audience. Mm. Uh, I get in contact with them to help them cover that side. Mm -hmm. I'll also mention that your blog is probably one of the more informative pieces of like information people can stumble upon where you do a lot of side by side analyses of like, let's say the photogrammetry, the, the major photogrammetry software, the right reality capture, edge soft photo scan versus uh, like 3DF Zephyr. Um, yeah. you, you, I think you're, it's probably one of the most like deeper f forms of like technical information you could read as, as for someone that's getting into it. And you also do a lot of reviews of the mobile the the mobile apps that do but you know the pseudo photogrammetry things and so i think yeah if there's any kind of media uh organization or or blog that that goes very deep about these forms of technology i would probably say you're you're at the top of that yeah thank you yeah i think i think it's important uh to do comparisons because that's usually uh the first thing that people ask me like should i use this or that or that and uh, what it comes back to is that the question is easier than the answer because uh, the thing that excites me about 3D capture is that it, it and that's, that's unlike anything else, it's unlike photography, it's unlike 3D printing or VR or AR or whatever. 3D scanning really depends on the subject. And that, that right. it can be very small details, like you can not even like uh, define room scanning, like what, what can I use to scan a room? The first, the, the, the first question I ask is like, what kind of room? You, yeah. And, and, and perhaps even the, what is the end result going to yeah. be and, well, and yeah. work back? Exactly. Yeah. Right? What's the, the target uh, purpose for mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Let's start with a room. Let's say, let's say I want to scan, scan my living room um, yeah. for any, you know, for any purposes. Um, is there a one size fits all approach right now? Uh, that you you know you put out there, and if not, then what are the different possibilities that someone could go down? It's interesting that uh, from the very first moment that I started uh, promoting myself as a, as a 3D capture expert, room scanning has been the number one <laughs> question that people have asked me. Somehow, everyone wants to capture interiors, and the fact is that uh, interiors are the most complex things. Mm -hmm. in general because they are uh, usually uh, large and full of stuff 
and contain uh, there is this list of like impossible things to scan like uh, reflective things uh, transparent things very dark things and mm. a room usually contains all of those like yes very uh, bad light conditions uh, mixes or mixes of indoor lighting and outdoor lighting that also changes like that's the worst thing for photogrammetry that you need to take like a, a thousand photographs but during your shoot daylight has changed significantly so there is no consistency so room scanning is is the is the big thing that people are asking about and it's actually one of the things i haven't yet covered uh, on my blog because it is so complex and because there are uh, still the the, the 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 stuff that's there uh, to do it is still under development and uh, a lot of, uh, for example, uh, a lot of very cool stuff that is uh, under development for uh, scanning rooms with depth sensors is still very much in the academic sphere. So th these are all these papers from universities uh, with uh, GitHub compilable source codes that no one understands. Uh, but there's no commercial software to do it. Mm. And then Deep. there was this very small time yes. that there was Google Tango which was exciting to scan uh, interiors, and exactly. then it was gone again. Now, um, it's gone, I have yeah. a question yeah. regards this particular problem. So we accidentally picked up the most difficult case of the room, and it's great. And what I see, yeah. at least from a distance, because I mean, the, the topic of 3D scanning is super fascinating to me as to Azad, but I'm not so much involved as Azad or, or you, right? But still, I kind of see that when you look at photography, there is right now um, a great improvement in software made photography so the camera sensor that i have on my phone yeah. is kind of as similar as a few years ago but the photos seem to be way better because the sensor starts to understand the context what are those things is applying magic yeah. and from what i understand uh, with my very yeah. uh, s simple understanding of 3d scanning is that when you are actually going to be able to scan a room you need also to train the software to understand the context of, of, of the room of the different objects and yeah. is this something we are slowly going to or are we still at a phase where you know the sensors are be being distributed among or is, is there actually someone like apple or google considering you know adding this functionality like tango had in a very simple way um, back into the mobile devices yeah, I think uh, the more general question is, uh, uh, and I've been starting to cover that uh, recently, is how big the impact of AI will be on 3D capture. Like uh, a, a lot of questions I get uh, from people uh, that want to solve something with 3D capture, um, the answer is sometimes that 3D capture is not necessarily the technology to use because you don't have to have a volumetric uh, scan that is totally perfect of something uh, to be able to do simple measurements, for instance. And there have been these demos lately of uh, the ability to scan uh, humans that are just rotating casually uh, in place in a park that, uh, that would be something that's impossible to do with photogrammetry software. It would be a total mess, but with AI and, and machine learning, you can um, uh, generate a, a very accurate 3D model of a person uh, mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. Because you're training the software to do something specific, in this case, uh, scanning a human, so it, it knows what to expect, like yes. a pose and joints and, and, and general shape. So that's because very the interesting. The hardware for capturing things in 3D is still currently 
I guess, like the, the different things that you're covering really show that obviously, first of all, it takes um, more components or more specialized components, uh, whether it's like time of flight IR yeah. or, um, you know, I'm sure you can cover some of the, the different hardware requir requirements you need in either in cameras or, or LIDAR scanners. Um, but what you're saying is that perhaps for some applications and, and for a lot of perhaps applications when it comes to consumer technology, uh, what we're working, what we're seeing now is that the software is actually able to make up for um, not needing to require as advanced forms of like hardware on these yeah. technologies. Yeah, right? I, I think when, uh, these algorithms uh, are especially good uh, at filling in the blanks. Because with, with 3D capture, especially complex scenes and interiors, there are all these, always these obscured areas that are mainly in the, in the shadow of the sensor that will never be captured. And uh, uh, like a few years back, that, that would rely on filling this stuff with, 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 with ugly polygons. And now with AI, uh, these technologies can like uh, anticipate what would have been beyond yes. something, behind something, and fill in the blanks more uh, realistically. Which is great for uh, platforms like VR that now allow you to uh, look a bit further uh, around corners and stuff like that. Because before that, it, the, the viewpoint was it's, very um, kind of very similar to how the brain works, right? Uh, just to draw the analogy, um, there are a lot of optical illusions that uh, the human uh, visual system and or perception in general is basically targeted by and it's not like we perceive the world perfect but we can because we understand the context and the meaning of objects actually interact with them in a meaningful way there is this very famous picture um, of a lot of chairs in a room and there is one chair on the ceiling that is a lamp and one chair is a reflection of a chair and one chair is kind of a desk and one chair is a picture of a chair and one chair is a shadow of a chair and the question is how to teach a computer to actually understand whether the shadow is not a chair but actually the shadow of a chair and the lamp looks like a chair but it's actually a lamp and um, I think um, I would ask yep. you the following question um, do you consider the do you consider that um Augmented reality still is not as perfect as everyone expects to because we lack the capability of understanding 3D structure space and the moment that we actually can teach a computer or a machine to understand this living room scenario in a perfect way, we can actually have finally augmented reality working good? Um, yeah, I know that there is uh, a lot of this uh, uh, AI-assisted 3D capture tech that is in development that nobody has seen yet. And uh, I was writing the other day, uh, last week or something, about uh, the new Facebook mm. memories thing. Yes. That they they, they apparently created that. something that uh, can pull a few photos from a, from a family party from your photo library and generate a point cloud of the entire room from that. It's for me. It's like how? Yes. How does that work then? How think, how do they mm, remove the people from the scene, fill in the blanks, right. and make a complete scene? When because when I think about the photographs I'm taking at the party, there would never be enough information to create even a part of a room. I mainly shoot like people from nearby and maybe a little bit of background, but it's always about the people. And they pretend like ah, just give us some even old photographs and we'll generate the room. And I'm like. Hmm. 
How? I, as far as I understood it, I thought they were more relying on video captured in the room yeah. and then extracting frames from that video. But you're right. As in, if for any for any purposes that you would be taking either pictures or videos inside of your room, you're most likely not just shooting an empty part of your room, no, right? You never. want people to be- Unless you're so a real estate agent. Right. Right. Then so you have these perhaps, video walkthroughs that, that they are all doing through a, an empty house or a okay, first, I mean, first I mean, house. There are two options. Either we already have secret spy cameras uh, installed by Facebook and all our homes, or they figured a way to do it similar to a brain, because if I would actually show you the same footage that their algorithm uses, you might at least produce the outline of the room and, and maybe kind of, you know, pre predict the geometry based on your understanding of the physical world. And when you add to that the RGB information from the video, it, it seems to be enough, but it's crazy that they managed to teach a machine to actually have all those assumptions, as it seems in their demo. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um, I, I really want to go into the consumer side of, of this technology yeah. and, and its implications. Um, and we'll get back to this later on in the episode. Uh, but I think, Peter, you, you hit on something really interesting describing how we as humans perceive the, you know, the rooms that we're sitting in. We actually are a single point capture you know, technology, right? If you're sitting in one chair, you're not sitting on the other side of the room and seeing what's behind that table. But because of your past experiences of seeing tables from many different sides, and perhaps even that table specifically in the past, you know, in, in the days and weeks past, you do have that um, top-down processing of uh, what that room is supposed to look like. And you can fill in the new information from the new, with that single point perspective that you have. Um, and it's interesting seeing that now with, I guess, AI is trying to, hopefully trying to do similar things with uh, filling in the gaps of the perspectives that that capture module doesn't have, right? So, uh, and maybe Nick, you can point to this. Like, what are the interesting companies that we can look at, or what are the the, the pieces of news that excites you about this new for this next generation of capture technology that is AI powered, that it is AI assisted? Is are there things out there yet that are exciting? Um, yeah, the, the things I've seen so far, uh, except from the the recent Facebook announcements. Um, um, are still very much uh, in uh, also in academic uh, process of, of being like the papers and stuff. So it's not like commercially out there for you to try. And that's, that's always hard for me because uh, the one thing I've learned from 3D capture is that to even give an opinion about it, I have to try it for myself. And sometimes people get tired of all the same uh, objects I always use, but I do that because I know the objects very well and I know what to right. expect. Uh, and they all it's controlling uh, variables. Yeah, yeah. They, they it, it's very hard to for me to uh, accept that just casually rotating uh, in place uh, can capture a human with like I read something like a five millimeter accuracy. Like mm, how uh, based on HD footage, how how can that be possible? So I want to test things first because uh, then I can give a good opinion. But for um, uh, uh, to, to go back to the uh, the thing you said before uh, the AI question, like the perception of reality, that's actually something I've been talking about uh, even today. Um, uh, when you're talking about VR and perception of reality compared to uh, the perception of actual reality, is that uh, uh, what's happening right now is that it's almost the same like uh, what, what, what could be called like uncanny valley uh, for uh, digital actors. 
like people can perfectly um, sympathize with cartoon characters which are not which are not realistic at all and they can do that with like filmed characters but when trying to simulate something very close to reality which is essentially what reality capture is um, we have this feeling about what's right and what's not so um, a very simple VR scene with a bunch of like purple geometry can be yeah. very immersive while uh, almost perfect it's photogrammetry 3D capture of the same room feels slightly off and can break the immersion. So that's that's interesting for me. Because yeah. the, do, I always miss what was the due, goal that you have. Yeah. Do you think that's due to, I mean, how would you attribute that? Is it because we, uh, with, with animations, with, uh, with cartoon characters, it's almost like you extract the important elements of, uh, of emotion, which, yeah. uh, which now I've, I've learned to be like, you know, eyebrows are probably one of the most important things that a yeah. cartoon character needs to have. Uh, but when you get closer to reality to, to trying to simulate every little muscle movement in the face, uh, you don't have it exactly right or how, how would you describe that like difference i think that's the whole uh, uncanny valley thing like that's it's it's hard to describe uh but people feel it or something and i i, th I think you uh you, you can have it with uh with people especially uh but you can also have it with environments like uh you i i've done a lot of uh demos with hd5 uh where people uh, were walking through this van gogh painting it's really good i think yeah. everybody knows the the cafe something uh, so it yeah it's like it's, it, it, it's yeah. the yeah it's it's uh it's i think it's even on sketch from yeah and there's uh, this mm -hmm. audio with it so you and, can walk a bit and meet him van gogh's room uh in this mm -hmm. painting style meet him in person but it's all stylized and it works pretty well uh for the immersion uh, but I've also uh, done uh, some walkthroughs with the HC5 into like captured environments. And when, when it's like um, a cave or something, it, it works for me. Like archaeological findings that are being 3D captured with photogrammetry because I don't know what it would be like for real. But I've also uh, made a 3D capture of my own office. Uh, where the H I don't have it anymore, but where, where the HC5 was actually situated. So I was uh, walking in VR uh, in the 3D capture of the same room that I was in, like kind of Inception style. And and because I know the room very well, then then it's not it's sort of not okay. And especially with with like furniture in rooms uh, and flat stuff, and and it, it's very hard to do right. Organic stuff like caves and and and. Maybe church and stuff like that can be very convincing, but it's somehow the the simpler rooms are yes. harder to. Um, so be um, my mind it. was um, kind of blown away the first time I tried the Hololens um, because it was like some closed room demo on a big big exhibition and it was like super guided. But when I was actually perceiving this 3D object, whatever it was, on a desk, and I bent it and looked under the desk, I couldn't see the object anymore. But with AirKit uh, or AirCore, I kind of don't have that. So when I place an object on, on a surface and I kind of go with a phone below it, I still see it kind of, right? And I think, um, no. and, and this yeah. is one, and that's cool. it's, it's still a big problem, but it's like uh, those small problem. details, whether the physics behaves right, whether the shadows fall right, I guess 
our eyes can pick it up very easily. But what's with Reality's uh, I.O. Um, and their application? So I tried it many times and they have like this huge environments scanned pretty detailed and it doesn't feel very uncanny valley. I mean, those are not necessarily places I visited myself, but it still feels very realistic or actually even this mountain from, um, uh, how is it called, the Steam Lab experience? I don't know, um, the, 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 Everest from the lab, yes. I always oh, put people yeah, there. Yeah. The it lab. looks gorgeous yeah, and doesn't lab, really yeah, yeah. feel unnatural. How do they do it? What's their trick? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I think that, <laughs> of course, that's an out, outdoors area. So I, that's also different than indoors because it's like uh, you, I think naturally when you're in such an environment, you tend to look, look out and don't focus on very small details. I think it's not very different than uh, the the kind of immersion you get in, in like uh, a console game or anything. Like you can like walk through an open field or an open world and be excited, but you you will not walk up to a tree stump and like examine the tree stump. But when you put someone in a very small room, you're tempted to like uh, check all the details and everything is much closer to you. Right. And, and, and I think having things be within arm's reach yeah. also encourages people to want to interact with those things. Yeah. You know, that, that, what do you do when you're in your friend's room for the first time you or you know, someone's room and you kind of are curious, you want to know who this person is, yeah, right? Like you're like, very close. guy, like what? Yeah, very close. Books, you yeah. pick up the, the things that are on their desk and you like get a better understanding. Yeah. And did you try the, oh the Blade God. Runner experience, the indoors Blade Runner experience? You no, should I check that so. out. That's uh Someone, I think it's it's not even an official thing. I, I'm not sure. Maybe it's a fan-made thing, but they uh, essentially made uh, uh, the main character's room, uh, a condo room, very realistically uh, as a as a VR experience. You can you can download it from Steam, and uh, that's very interesting because uh, a lot of stuff is interactive, and uh, you can, and the detailing is very very well done. But I, I, it's not a captured so, room of design. Right. It is, you're right. It's a fan made VR app called Blade Runner 90, uh, 9732. Yeah. And last, I'm, I'm seeing an upload VR article oh, saying no. that it's going to be removed from Steam due to war, but not by Warner Brothers. Right. Um, so we, as to whether it, this is still out is debatable. I have to find it. I'm very curious now. Um, so in that that wasn't a 3D scan version, right? That was probably something yeah. that was modeled. Yeah, because there isn't a real version of it to capture. I think. But you have <laughs> maybe somewhere in it. Maybe you could uh, you know apply the Facebook algorithms and just recreate. Yeah. Or maybe you could technically apply Facebook algorithms that they yeah. use for this party room recreation, actually to you know create those virtual movies yeah. similar as in Ready Player One. Yeah, I I think there have been some uh, interesting demos of. Uh, um, uh, of parts of video that have been pulled into photogrammetry software to make a volumetric environment, like uh, stuff from mu music videos that have moving cameras on rails are ideal yeah. uh, for such uh, things. And then you can essentially create a 3D version of your favorite uh, yeah. part of a movie or part of a, a music video and be able to walk in Right. Or let's say like aerial shots, drone shots from within a movie yeah. uh, that are, you know, orbiting a specific scene. Oh, so those are perfect did, to that, just right? pull, pull the frames out. Like and introduction scenes. Create. 
Yeah, I've done I've done a few of those, but I need to I actually need to dedicate like a weekend to sitting down and watching just like some of my favorite films and finding scenes that are just so perfect, and then like just cutting those Ma- out. And metrics scene should be good, yeah, right? Just, Whereas the uh, cameras I, I, I think, tape around then, yeah. him, yeah, you know, dodging bullets. Yeah, yeah. And I oh, think Matrix. The, mm. Yeah, but there's still a bit of movement in in the in the. Mm. It's not totally static. They're like offset a little bit. That's Plus, hard. there's a lot of motion blur that happens a lot in, in film shots yeah. because, you know, the, the, the environment is less important than the subjects. And and typically, I think maybe you can correct me with VFX. They've been using these uh, both photogrammetry and LIDAR capture to do set capture and set ex- extensions. Yeah. And they're not as concerned about how high of a fidelity those captures are because they end up blurring, you know, they're using bokeh and, yeah. and the, you're concentrating more on the subjects, the actors talking and, and blurring out the background. So as long as it looks somewhat realistic and, and can respond to lighting changes, then uh, you can get a, get away with it. But now with VR and with real time engines, these for, these technologies have to be uh, are going to the point of like these need to work in real time and they need to stand up to like someone literally going and sticking their head right so close yeah, to it and to seeing the same amount right. of fidelity. Yeah. Um, and also yeah, that's depth, part of it. also depth of field, I think, because that's essentially what you're saying that in cinematic uh, uh, environments you you use depth of field to blur out the background, and in VR everything is in focus. Because there isn't like you have this Vovi uh, headset that yes. that does iris tracking or something that can blur the background based on your your own focus. I never tried it for real, so I don't know if it. Uh, did you ever try it? We've yes. we have I, and we, I even we've had a one. podcast it's lying on my shelf. Oh. Uh, it's working interestingly, and I think Azad also tried this headset with the mirror rotating projection foveated rendering. Um, no, they, 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 that form of that headset is coming soon, but I have tried foveated rendering, uh, headsets actually yeah. in a gear VR, uh, who was it? So SMI had a gear VR version before they were acquired by Apple that yeah. had foveated rendering. And so, yeah, Fovea, I mean, I think yeah. was probably one of the first ones to, uh, implement that idea with eye trackers, but that is going to be for sure a feature of the generation two of, of these VR headsets that even actually let's, let's talk about this first. A second oculus uh, facebook announced at f8 they're a prototype version of of a rift headset that has very focal displays where with eye tracking they know obviously where you're looking at in the scene but if you hold up an object very close to your face in vr currently it's blurry because you know you can't focus on things that are closer than like half a meter or something or perhaps it's a little bit smaller than that but with very focal displays they're literally moving yeah exactly they're moving the one of the lenses or both of the right. lenses closer or further away from your eye and uh, so that you can focus on things differently. And uh, and be, as an effect of that, you get real true uh, field of view blurring and that bokeh that we're all so used to. Yeah. I'm curious um, to how, how fast they can pull it off because human no, focusing is well, very fast. It is, but I mean, right. one third of your time that you're seeing, you're well, not really seeing your eyes moving during that time, you're not perceiving anything. And also you close your eyes, you have micro saccades, you have saccades. Then again, the eye is a muscle, right? Um, it also has a certain, yeah, it's pretty slow. No, it's actually not that fast. Like comparing, it's not instant. Com- 
Um, I think it was an I, it was Apple that announced a few years ago something called like deep pixels or, or uh, it was essentially a way of, of doing autofocus very quickly from things that are cur- fat, uh, closer and further away and comparing how close I can how fast I can change my focus from a close hand yeah the focus that happens between uh, in your eye is a little bit slower than your iPhone's focus <laughs> from from switching from things so anyway there's a, there's a lot that I think can be improved there to match the real. Uh, how we actually perceive things. Yeah. Um, but I think that moves us, Nick, to like, I guess, VR headsets. And typically when we do these podcasts, we host them in VR. We, you know, we meet up in VR and we have hands and all these cool things. The reasons why we do them in VR. You, I think, would be like such an ideal person to have a VR headset yeah. because you work with 3D. And what you told me is that you used to have headsets and now you yeah. don't. So tell us a little bit about why that's so. Um, yeah, I actually, I think I owned almost every headset out there. I, I started like, I think four years ago with the DK2 Oculus Rift. Um, and that, that was very much, uh, when, when I was still running, uh, uh, my animation studio business and we were, uh, my, my co-founder and I were like, uh, investigating, uh, a move to real time 3D. And VR was a natural like next step for us, and uh, but then we 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 quickly realized that uh, creating content for two uh, D video output is so much different than creating for uh, for for real time three D. It actually never came really out of the R and D phase, but it did uh, interest me in VR. Uh, so uh, after uh, uh, that one, uh, we, we, we got uh, the Gear VR and that totally convinced me that uh, like 3 DOF mobile stuff is not VR, hmm. period. <laughs> so, and that actually uh, drove like my uh, sort of uh, negativity towards 360 photography because it was not I'm a 3D person and that's not 3D. So yeah. it's not, so it's not reality or something. So, uh, <laughs> so that's, that's a nice bridge to uh, what you're saying about light fields. But in between that, uh, I got, uh, the HC5 first, which I really liked. Uh, but, um, the, the office I'm in right now, I, I always have to like move all stuff out of place to be even step into VR. And then I got tethered to my PC that was on the other side of the room. And so it was really impractical. And I found that um, the threshold to casually step into VR was very high. And uh, every time I wanted to step in, I had to to do like uh, 25 Steam updates and whatnot, firmware updates. And uh, so so I like being in VR. I I also had a, a Oculus Rift. And I didn't really like the seated experience thing. I was like, okay, mm. VR should be like free locomotion, even though it's just a four by four meters space. It worked for me quite well. And, um, but the thing I engaged in most was like in VR creation, like Tilt Plus and Google Blocks. So, because my background as a 3D uh, designer and an animator, I like these creation tools the most. I, I'm not into gaming a lot, so I, I didn't do a lot of games, some simulations, but I like free gaming and I totally see the the, the thing I, I think still is the killer feature for VR is like 
collaborative creation. Right. Like being did able you, to, yeah. Did you find value in these VR creation tools and, and how they fit into your current workflows? Um, yeah, uh, but mainly on, a, on a, what I like about uh, creating stuff in VR is uh, that that's the only way you can digitally create stuff at scale, like at one, uh, 100% scale. Uh, well, on a, on a computer, you're essentially working on a very small scale on a screen and you're zooming in and zooming out to create details, while in VR, you just move closer and then uh, you sculpt a little bit uh, of detail and then you step further away or walk around something. And then you, so the, the workflow was very uh, liberating in that sense. But uh, for professional purposes, it was also very exhausting. So I've been uh, doing some like Tilbrush stuff for, for like half an hour and I was totally exhausted. And uh, especially because the headset is still quite heavy and sweaty and warm and foggy and whatnot. So it was fun, but I cannot see uh, in, with this current generation of VR headsets, like professionals that have deadlines and need to produce like a lot of content. So interesting. Working I mean, I think VR, I have to like, out myself in this podcast finally. I didn't buy a VR headset since a few years neither. I have still somewhere a Gear VR lying around. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible person. I'm like, um, I think How I'm very you? close to buying one, uh, but... I usually either have access to the VR headsets at work or I, or I take them home to record the podcasts. But um, whenever I, you know, have to show VR, have to set it up, have to use VR, uh, even though I'm deeply fascinated by the HTC Vive and also the Oculus, it's always, as you described, you know, updates. Oh, yeah, Steam needs to be restarted. Or when I do mixed reality recordings, oh, a computer needs to be updated. Oh, mixed reality tells me to use my voice, even though I don't want it to. Oh, you know, some kind of game crashed and I have to restart it. And it's... Um, was kind of dif yeah. different yesterday when I tried the Oculus Go. You just put it on and it works, even though big screen crashed a few times. But uh, it kind of feels more like a device that would be easier to use uh, every day. So I'm really considering getting one of those. But uh, yeah, w what do you think needs to change with uh, the VR tools, with the way you interact, and also with the headsets and ergonomics that you would actually use it every day? How would you imagine your perfect headset? Wireless. Uh, and uh, with inside out tracking, I think. Because I think like being able to move around is way more important than most people think. I, I think it's not even about moving around a lot, but even the natural wobble of your yes. head and the slight parallax that gives is like, uh, the can, can deliver right. so much more immersion than not having that feature. Yeah, and I think even just the parallax aspect is probably enough to convince certain people that work with 3D to use it just as, even as a display, if, even if they're going to use, let's say, a mouse and keyboard, mm -hmm. where I think is uh, you, yeah. you can still have natural things with the controllers. But the parallax aspect is huge for 3D work. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, even a, a little bit of movement is enough to be uh, convincing and um and then there is this aspect that we just talk, talked about, like uh, being able to just put it on and start it. Like I, I've always been uh, a fan of uh, console gaming versus PC gaming for that very reason. Like I want uh, that to be like uh, a relaxing experience. So I just want to right. put my PlayStation on and be gaming in seconds yeah. because ti I don't have a lot of spare time. So when I want to do something, I want to do it right now for yes. half an hour and then leave it and come back to it later. 
And yeah, uh, you, you don't want to deal with driver updates, uh, you know, every time you want to play a video game. No. And, and for that, for, for the, for the, for the Vive, I, uh, first it, at first it worked better because I bought a PC, especially for VR, which was just set up as a VR PC. But then I discovered mm-hmm. that the video card inside of it was great for photogrammetry. So I started using it for all kinds of 3D capture purposes. And then it and then became you- like a working machine. And, uh, and not a dedicated VR. I moved no, it onto my desk in, it, instead of... It like, makes sense. I think this new headset that at uh, some point will uh, show and announce. I think they showed already the Santa Cruz, I think, is the newest one. So it has inside-out tracking and six degrees of freedom and a standalone Azad, right? Is it Santa Cruz or...? Yeah, Santa Cruz is a fully all-in-one headset that has inside-out tracking uh, for both positional tracking of the headset, but also tracking of the two sixed-off controllers, which yeah. right now is still unachieved by, any, or at least any of the consumer headsets don't have full two-hand tracking. Um, so we're we're like yeah. I think you're totally valid in terms of the ergonomics uh, and the user experience problems of the current high-end VR headsets. Yeah. It's first generation. It requires a lot of like a lot of someone to want to go into VR, you know, like you talked about, especially if you have room scale VR, it's a whole thing, like move things out of the way, put on the headset, make sure it's not hot inside because you'll fog up the the, display. And especially with the DK2 back in the day, that was a big problem for me. I run a few degrees hotter than most people, I guess. But um, (laughs) I think there's, there's a lot of uh, there's huge rooms of improvement and all these headset manufacturers are directly trying to answer these questions. Yeah. I think the the question of whether or not uh, this is going to be a useful tool, I think com- kind of comes back to you and, and, and to professionals that work in, in 3D all the time. Uh, do you think they perhaps um, have been jaded by what ex- exists today versus what will exist in the next three years uh, to thinking? Or, or do you think the, the whole industry itself will be at that point where if you don't have a headset as a 3D professional in five years, mm-hmm. then you're probably going to, you're missing out on, on huge improvements in your workflow and, uh, and, and experiences? Oh, that's, that's a good question. I'm not, I'm not too convinced if that's the time frame for it, like a few years from now, I don't see, uh, I, when, when that, that's why I make the, the verification between doing it for fun or at a more artistic level or doing it like for design purposes, which, which are, uh, like very time and, and budget driven. And, um, I can, I, I know a lot of people that do 3D modeling and 3D sculpting and, and everybody likes being able to sculpt in VR, but people that do this for a living, uh, which I'm not, uh, but, but like very good, like zebra sculptors can do incredible stuff very fast with a, a simple, like a $300 Wacom tablet and their hand on the keyboard, like they know all the shortcuts so they can work productively very fast and very accurate as well. So there is no right. accuracy improvement with VR. There is no time improvement with VR. It's only an experience improvement. And I think uh, the, the collaborative improvement, that's the thing that cannot be matched. I think um, there is um, also a certain aspect of VR that you mentioned before, this ability to move around that um, maybe right now doesn't give uh, someone who is doing 3D artists, 3D art, design a big value, but for example, in the product that um, we are building, um, 
where I'm working at, we focus on the planning part of production facilities. And there, the easiness of VR allows for the blue color yeah. workers and manager, but also the production planner and also the 3D expert who does all the yeah. cut modeling actually to enter together VR and explore it. But you can also even plan it in VR and it's kind of simpler than sitting yeah. in front of a paper and then digitizing it or actually using a complex tool. So while I think doing really precise or really good yeah. or really um, like the final stage of a model or a plan or a planning facility or whatever is definitely right now and might even be for longer times better on a PC. Uh, the, I think the rough sketches, um, even for 3D art in general, should be better through VR. And I um, could maybe draw an um, example from smartphone versus PC. So I had to edit a recent episode of our podcast uh, on my iPhone, which worked surprisingly well. It just took me five hours instead of one, because even though the software was totally capable of <laughs> managing this huge amount of data, like one, I think two gigabytes of audio raw file on the iPhone, crazy, it managed. But touching, the, the, the touchscreen is actually difficult compared to a mouse and keyboard. And with VR, it's kind of similar uh, because you don't have yet that precision that you usually have with a mouse or keyboard. Uh, and VR is in a similar way, kind of like a touchscreen. It is very intuitive, but intuitiveness doesn't necessarily lead always to effectiveness, right? It takes a certain amount of time to learn your perfect cut model program. And when you know the shortcuts, you're good. But when you just take someone who is uh, not very experienced and someone who is um, already very experienced, both of them will be kind of doing fine with uh, the VR uh, part, which is limited, but obviously the expert is way better with this productive software, but the, someone, uh, but, but the person who is not particularly good at 3D art at all is still being enabled through VR, right? So maybe at that level, it will change the landscape in the next yeah. five to 10 years, or do you think that it's just too much expectation? Uh, yeah, yeah. I I think that's exactly uh, uh, the. I think the analogy between uh, the difference between a, a desktop computer and a, a tablet is is very very great also for VR, because uh, when I look at, at like video production, I don't see anyone producing professional video editing on an iPad yet, but I do see a lot of people uh, that are in editing that do the rough editing like on the plane back. To, uh, to the studio on an iPad, uh, loading the EDL into uh, like Premiere Pro or Final Cut Pro or Effort or what, what not, and then doing the actual editing there. So for sketching and prototyping, that's uh, actually, I, I believe, uh, because my, my background is in, in creative production, that um, at early stages of uh, creative work, it's actually a benefit that a technology is limited. So uh, I've always preferred to do storyboarding and I've done a lot of storyboarding for my animation studio in the past five years on paper, not any type of funky, funky tablet or whatever, just paper because it's limiting to a black marker with a set thickness and a piece of paper. You cannot delete stuff uh, you can just draw and you can, you can work creatively. And then when everything is lined out, you can just uh, like maybe scan it or, or, or uh, trace it. But it's not uh, just limiting and, you. And add it's, more details. Uh, sorry, so it's to, not just limiting, it's also enabling you because uh, in, in a way a computer mm -hmm. has no, more features, great. particularly for storyboarding, but you don't have this ability to just, you know, draw a circle or just move your hands slightly there and make a zigzag line, whatever, as you would do in real life. So it's, the, the functionality is limited, but what you have is limitless. So how you draw the line is totally to you compared to, you know, on yeah. the tablet and you have the precision of the pen or whatever. 
Yeah, and I think that's why uh, in VR, uh, the mm -hmm. best tool for that is, uh, is is still brush for me because there are now uh, these 3D, real 3D modeling or sculpting tools in VR that are trying to do what desktop software is doing in VR, which doesn't quite work for me. But uh, what Tiltbrush does is something that ha hasn't been able to uh, exist before because on a, on a desktop PC, you cannot draw or paint in 3D. It's simply not possible. So uh, it's essentially uh, 3D sketching. And I've seen uh, a lot of uh, artists use Tiltbrush as a 3D sketching mechanism, collaborative or not, or maybe solo, to do, do rough sketching of maybe a character, like for character design or fashion characters or, or whatever, or even uh, environments, and then load the uh, OBG into like Maya or Cinema 4D or Zebras or whatever, and then creating the actual scene from that. Because doing that sketch work on a desktop PC is is actually it, it's not even possible to sketch. It's also, from what I've understood for uh, working with some three D artists, is that there's a actually a big disconnect between a three D modeler and a three D artist when some one one of the artists doing the concept work for a like a film or a game versus the the artist that or the modeler that's actually building the production ready assets. Yeah. There's those are actually two different people that work on two different things. And um, what I'm starting to see now is that there's they're starting to blend in a little bit because the sketching traditionally was either happening on a Wacom tablet or yeah. a even pen and paper, and that isn't three D. That doesn't doesn't particularly translate into production um, and they have to recreate that from those concepts and yeah. now the concept is actually starting to become the the production ready asset or at least in in a way like there is a real 3d model that the modeler can work off of to yeah. optimize for production yeah. um, and another another I think I would like to offer a counterpoint to the time um, aspect of VR so you're I, I would agree in terms of the accuracy uh, VR creation tools don't offer the same accuracy levels that a uh, experienced ZBrush modeler can achieve with you know, with like five years or 10 years of experience with all the hotkeys and shortcuts. Mm -hmm. But, um, from what I'm hearing from artists is that the, the, the time it takes to create iterative, um, any to iterate on any idea is so fast that it ends up becoming a way in, it reduces the time to create something. So to make, yeah. you know, three different versions of an environment takes way less time to do in VR, even though it's not accurate per se. But if, yeah. if the, the, your, the, the thing you're trying to create is the idea that you have in your head to a asset that you can use to storyboard off of, VR is like killing it right now. Yeah. And I, and, and I yeah. guess the, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I think that what you're essentially saying that is it's an awesome prototyping tool, like a conceptualizing tool. Because you can iterate it quite, yeah. quite fast. And, yes, uh, and that, that, is, that is cool. And that is like uh, new. And then you can move and, it and down the pipeline uh, to, to make it pretty. And I think where where the the intersection to with already existing tools will really make a lot of sense is when the VR headset can is is cheap enough and and can run on already let's say like ninety or eighty percent of computers uh, that professionals use and you can use let's say you're already using ZBrush but um, having a headset that you can quickly put on to see it to have that parallax view that you were talking about I think can be extremely valuable yeah. using the already the tools. 
that you know how to use. I think that's rather than trying to reinvent the entire user interface of like how to do do 3D work, I think using it as a display can just augment your already existing workflows. And uh, we're starting to see a little bit of that. Like we don't, you know, ZBrush doesn't have a VR viewer, but um, I think it was a Digital Foundry like released a 3D tool that is not as a normal 2D tool that also has a VR component and you can go back and forth, you know, inst- uh, instantly. I think yeah, and I'm, the game I'm excited engines to see are more. doing it like Unreal and Unity and both, both have like in VR creation tool sets that are constantly developing. Like you're creating your VR game in VR, right. which, which makes sense. And I, th- I also think for for tools like um, um, uh, Tilt Brush and Oculus uh, Medium and Quill, that that there is like a new style uh, coming out of that that have, hasn't been seen before. So it's like a more uh, painting painty style that hasn't has, has been done before in like real painting and two D, but not in three D necessarily. Very edgy. Three D um, used to be decide. like like yeah. very. Uh, uh, either uh, very like low polygon or very realistic, but mm. not a lot of in between. Yeah, not a, not a lot of the abstract uh, forms no, exactly, 2D yeah. paintings now being in 3D. You're totally right about that. Um, let's let's bring it back to uh, some of the, the, the capture technologies we were talking about and, and connect it to uh, to mobile phones and consumer tech. Um, do you see a big future with uh, these capture technologies becoming useful for everyday consumers to capture uh, and to experience? Yeah, I, I think, um, uh, of, of course, I cannot predict the future, but I do realize that what made uh, video big and, and things like YouTube big was essentially user-generated content. So. Um, like liberating content creation uh, has been huge for video and photography both. So uh, for uh, these 3D aware, volumetric 3D, 3D mediums like AR, I think the key to success is uh, enabling everyone to create content. So, and and I, I think the smartphone is the device to do that. Right. I think, yeah, you're right in the sense that video and photography became the bigger industry that it is today because of the user-generated content and the ability to sell things through those, right? Like Instagram, the fact that it does though so well is because you have people with a lot of followers being able to promote, you know, whatever products or it's a way of, of it's a distribution channel that pr- before you had to go through advertisers on TV mm-hmm. and now um, content creators and uh, product manufacturers actually have direct distribution channels. Yeah, I guess it's, it's definitely a question I ask myself, right? Like, is there value for a consumer for them to either capture their their favorite teddy bear in 3D or capture themselves in 3D, you know, or capture their rooms? Um, how, so you, you work a lot with the the consumer tech that exists today, right? Yeah. Like, let's let's name a few. the um, the Bellus the Bellus 3D Face Camera Pro for the Android, yeah. uh, the Wake uh, the Wake. Let's see the th- the iSense 3D scanner. Um, can yeah? Can you kind of give us an overview yeah. of what exists today? Are they useful, and what are they useful for? And perhaps also extrapolate it a little bit into the future uh, of what should exist and yeah. what will. Yeah, I think that um, all those examples, like the depth sensors, like the 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 the, the, the add-on uh, Bellus uh, 3D camera that I tested recently, and all the depth sensors before that, 
like the uh, 3D systems, Sense, Scanner, uh, they're all targeted. Uh, they used to be targeted at consumers when these companies were uh, still believing that 3D printing was going to be huge for consumers. Hmm. So they were promoting in the, in the early days, like I think two or three years back, they were promoting depth sensor scanning uh, like a copy machine thing. Like you have the 3D printer and now you have the 3D scanner. So you can take your favorite action figure or shoe, scan it and print it. So that obviously didn't take off. And, hmm. um, and I think for consumers, uh, to uh, embrace 3D capture, it needs to be like built into phones. So I'm I'm really uh, excited about uh, the, the the pure software things that uh, companies like Sony are doing on the on the Xperia uh, phones, like almost real time AR assisted uh, photogrammetry essentially. And I think the AR part there is very interesting because. Uh, the missing link between uh, like photography and being able to capture stuff in 3D is because it's new for people. So people, everyone knows how to take a photograph now on, on a smartphone and it's all like well-known stuff. You, you press a button, you have a photo. And, but 3D capture is essentially very hard. I, essentially, if, if you haven't done it before, it's um, hard. I, I want and to what I really ask like, two questions. One is, yeah. um, what's about the um, uh, iPhone, uh, the double camera layout and also in other phones where it technically creates this bouquet effect fakishly, but I have tried to... Um, actually open those photos that are produced by the iPhone with another app, I think it's called Focus, and there you actually see mm -hmm. that the photo is not flat, it's actually having those intersections, it's actually creating a depth map, and then you can even change the focus back and forth, mm -hmm. and this is basically yeah. nothing else than understanding the structure of the room just from yeah. one perspective. And another example would be... Um, so there was a Verge article, uh, I will put it in the show yep. notes, about a studio that uh, kind of 3D captures children. So um, there are basically people going there and their children are playing around and they're being basically recorded uh, volumetrically. And then it's like a volumetric memory that you can keep. And another thing that they did was basically capture veterans or people who, yep. is, who were survivors of the Holocaust or something like that. And, um, and later on, you, they added AI and you could ask yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like someone who died already, but he could tell you or, or the person could tell you the story through this um, AI chat uh, version. It's also kind of consumer uh, oriented. Just You just go to a studio similar as you would go 60 or even 30 years ago to a photography studio to make photos of your children, right? Yeah, I think I think that that's uh, also a big difference. Like, um, uh, depending on the use case, you can either uh, opt for like more centralized 3D scanning, like you have to go somewhere and uh, scan something, and then you have it. Like uh, when when you uh, uh, one topic uh, I I um, I hear a lot about is like uh, scanning feet to know shoe sizes uh, and stuff like that. So you, you don't have to order the wrong shoe size and get the perfect measurements of your feet. Um, you can, of course, do it in two ways. You can uh, uh, put a, a good 3D scanner in a, a sneaker store uh, where people usually go to buy shoes and do the scanning once there. Or you can try to put it off on a smartphone so people can do it at their homes. So those are two yeah. like consumer-focused use cases that, that are totally different 
when it comes to the technology used. Because this, doing it on a smartphone is, is still very hard because there are a lot of different ones. But the question remains, like, how much better is, uh, you know, is the shoe buying experience if you, you know, if going down that route of, of yeah. 3D scanning your feet versus, you know, how we've been doing it for the past 100 years um, with very with I don't know how much error rates, you know, we have when it comes to shoes. And 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 actually, it's funny, right? Like we for the longest time when the Internet was coming around, people, I thought, uh, say that. They had the hardest time believing that e-commerce of of clothes and shoes was going to be a thing, and one of the biggest things currently on Amazon that owns you know it, it, that is, uh, oh Amazon Prime is owned by at least fifty percent of American households like is clothes, and so even though that's not particularly uh, something we realized would be very popular, but like it really is, and and I question as to how important these three D technologies will be for for industries that are already doing just fine without them yeah. um, perhaps until the uh, the hardware itself is like integrated and it's not the main focus of that hardware isn't to scan your feet and to put shoes on it right it's it's like that's a byproduct of an already existing technology like the two cameras on your iphone yeah. um, i i really see like that, that um you need this technology from in order for augmented reality to work properly and augmented reality is going to be the major driving force of um, the consumers yeah, because they all want it, and you clearly see it. Maybe. Well, but with, with, with Maybe. VR, I mean, that's what we discussed today, you know, it's not necessarily that VR will enable you to easily design a full cut model of a motor uh, way quicker than before. But augmented reality is something that everyone wants to because you basically have your phone in the pocket, you need to take it out, you need to check your messages. You would love them to be, you know, displayed on some kind of surfaces around you or having virtual avatars running around you. I mean, it's just basically the magical world we have been dreaming since we were children and everyone wants it. And the only thing that stands in the way of it is not even the optics. I mean, the optics can be improved yeah. too, but uh, just basically the computer finally understanding the world around us. And that's basically the enabler for all the consumer technology. Yeah, I actually don't, I'm not convinced that everybody wants it. I'm, I'm, my opinion about uh, both VR and, and AR is currently that it's still in the face like uh, we're doing it because we can technically do it, but um, uh, that's mainly uh, from a technical perspective. And when you look at it from a business perspective, uh, I very much doubt that uh, it can be uh, a beneficial for every use case possible. I think when you look at e-commerce, uh, there are a lot of, uh, uh, if, you, if, if you're with your nose in 3D capture stuff all the time and you follow all the feeds of 3D capture companies that are developing 3D capture uh, software or hardware, of course they uh, uh, think that every experience is better with volumetric 3D models. Like even shopping on Amazon would be better if you can freely rotate around an object uh, before you buy it. But I'm very skeptical about it. I don't believe that it will, uh, and I, I don't have the, the research or, or knowledge about it essentially, but good product photography tells a lot of information about a product. And um, it's, you can, still create very marvelous photos of any object that you want 
Uh, and then a lot of uh, companies are coming to me to get informed about the possibilities to, uh, for instance, do 3D capture for e-commerce. And the thing you always go into is that you can actually not capture a lot of stuff in 3D. Like uh, many everyday objects like this glass, you can make great photographs of it, but it's simply impossible to capture now and in the future or whatever. It, it will never be done. Maybe maybe 100 years from now, but un until then it will not be able to be captured. And so you cannot sell it that way. And you don't want a website well, with only a few models that are interesting. With a new VR uh, experience, where they had like this area of cameras going around people or objects, and I tried it with a Vive Pro, and it was like amazing how realistic it looks. And when you just have an yeah. area of cameras, yeah, so that that that's very interesting. Yeah, because light field technology uh, that that's a very cool thing to talk about because. Uh, Is it 3D capture or not? Is it like more of an evolution of photography? Or is it right. like an ev evolution of like stereoscopic photography? Like just adding more? It's, it's even Absolutely. hard for it's most people to, to imagine, comprehend has, what a light field is currently. Uh, but it has but no it, geometry. It's, photo uh, photo right? it's just a light field. So technically it's photography, right? No. Well, it, do, it does have geometry information and, and the depth maps that, that no, no, I know, but that can be extracted. Like, I'm not saying it's the final experience is something that the geometry is needed. There, from what I understand, it's, it's the interpolation of the camera positions between those two cameras. Let's say, even if you have two cameras, stereo cameras, it's the, be, the ability to have the perspectives that are between those two yes, cameras, which is essentially what a light field processing, um, does. But, And, and I agree. I think for a lot of purposes, perhaps not having the, the geometry isn't the most important part, especially when it comes to hard things like glasses and transparent things. But it's the, um, it's that ability to perhaps have that slight parallax, like that you can yep. move your head or your, or your, your smartphone through, which leads to uh, perhaps was seen, right? That the app that was acquired by, by Snapchat, yep. was it Nick? Yeah. Um, and you have a blog post about like, is Facebook doing the next version of scene where they take a normal 2d photo that you've snapped on your phone, but, uh, extrapolate a depth map from it and give you that slight parallax. Is that a form of, uh, is that how you can see the, this consumer side being applied is that you have a still a fixed um, framing of a shot, but you have mm -hmm. the the free perspective that you can kind of wiggle within. Uh, yeah, I, I actually, uh, one, one of the most popular uh, posts on my blog was uh, a list of uh, free 3D capture tools that were out there. And over the past two years, I have been editing that blog post until it was gone because none of those uh, technologies exist anymore. Like it listed like one, two, three, catch, and uh, I believe uh, two others and also scene. And I wrote a, a special part about scene because it wasn't really like a full 360 3D capture, but it was very fast to do. You only had to move your phone like a, a few millimeters and it would capture it and it would be render very fast and be instantly uh, be publishable to uh, to the scene social network, which was like a, a 3D aware Instagram clone essentially. Right. And right. That, that's actually what, what Facebook is doing now. And uh, I believe they have a, a, a bit more sophisticated algorithms to do that. Uh, but it's essentially the, uh, the effect of adding a little parallax 
combined uh, with, with the, the gyroscope on your phone. But it, it's just a little depth effect. And uh, right. it, 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 of course, that would never work in VR. And I've, uh, when talking about the light field stuff, I've also uh, tried the demos of the light field stuff in, uh, on the Vive. And then it would be like, yeah. cool, 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 until you moved a little bit too fast and then you're out of the, the sphere or something right. and then it would break the illusion. But for, mo- for, for mobile phones, I think that kind of 3D is the first step to introduce 3D capture to a wider audience because it adds a little bit of more immersion or uh, so, interactivity to otherwise static photos. So from a consumer perspective, if I am right now, um, basically the average consumer having the average phone and having no particularly big knowledge about 3D scanning, is there any way that I would encounter this technology and actually realize that I can capture 3D? Because with photo is clear, everyone can make a photo. With video it's clear, with voice it's clear. But is there like an easy way to capture something 3D-wise as a consumer that is, exists there? Um, no, I, I don't think there is. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing is that I think it's one year or even one and a half year back, there was this uh, big announcement by Microsoft uh, about their uh, 3D capture plans. And they ha- had a big stage uh, uh, with a presenter that walked around the Sandcastle and captured in almost real time something in 3D. And uh, then they uh, announced the plans to create uh, not only a Windows uh, app for that, but also an Android app and an iPhone app. And that excited me because that would make like a cross-platform 3D capture experience that's hopefully free, that's uh, designed by a large uh, 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 corporation that can tie into all kinds of ecosystems. Because uh, currently it's very native to the operating system. Yeah. Right. It's currently very fragmented. Like you have the, the, I'm totally excited about the, the thing Sony is doing. But it's very much uh, uh, an Xperia called? flagship. It's called 3D Creator. And it's exciting, but it only works on Sony phones. And I know nobody that has a Sony phone. Like, uh, right. uh, yeah, here in, in the Netherlands, it's either an iPhone or a Samsung phone, and, or people like me that have like uh, Android phones because they are Android geeks. And uh, right. so, so there's no All like. What was an emoji? An emoji? Yeah. Is that the same the sem- sort of uh, capturing three D? No. Oh, that's the, the iPhone, iPhone thing. Yeah, like that you can, That's more like facial tracking. Samsung yeah, is, has is that like facial yes. tracking stuff? Yes, yes, yes. But it uh, is not necessarily just doing facial tracking. So technically, when you have your Snapchat open on Android or uh, an iPhone, you can do those masks, and there is also masquerade, which is like awesome and impressive even without necessarily just uh, being able to scan your face but just applying models but i think that an emoji from apple is actually using the three-dimensional capture of your face to apply uh, either filters um, on iphone 10 when you have the snap uh, snapchat uh, app or whatever or actually change your face into a, some kind of uh, poop it's, face it's or whatever. awesome it's, i i i'm starting to use it all the time now and it's on, like if you're any if you're as expressive as I am when it comes to like talking in real life, you can make the most <laughs> hilarious emoji clips that you send to friends. Um, it's seriously, it's it's a really. There is nothing better than waking up in the morning, checking Instagram, and seeing a pic with other's mimic trying to say something. <laughs> it's so cute. Always makes my day. 
That's right. Yeah, so um, and that makes for a very good uh, uh, consumer use case. I think uh, face capture and uh, like I think that that's the one thing that several companies and you you asked me before if I could give examples of companies that are doing AI stuff. And uh, I know uh, that uh, the company it sees 3D that that that's well known for the the structure sensor scanning app. They're also creating this uh, 3D avatar uh, creation um, SDK that uh, can uh, create a 3D model of an entire head from just a single selfie photograph. So I, I think that's also a thing, uh, and I've been writing about it a bit like, uh, uh, I think a lot of companies are trying uh, to do something for consumers with 3D and faces because it's more monetizable, like avatar creation, right. like putting yourself, when you're now, uh, when we would have done this conversation in VR, if I had a headset, we would probably choose like an Oculus Rift or a Vive character to represent ourselves. Uh, but with a, a 3D avatar, like a simple thing that you can either capture or generate through AI with your smartphone, you can uh, make that presence in VR uh, look exactly like you. So you know what? You're, you're, this comes back full circle to what we were just talking about with cartoons and, and uncanny value when it comes to photorealism is that... So faces are really important to capture. And I think we're one of the biggest things we do with technology is communicate between each other. And uh, it's such a funny stark contrast between how iPhone does uh, does what, what it does, which is essentially real time mocap of a, of a cartoon character. But it has those very human elements of the moving eyebrows, the ears that animate with your eyebrows, the face, the the, the even the jawbone they, they model and animate in, in real time. Um, and, and comparing that to what Samsung unveiled with their like note nine or whatever um and it was that you you know you take a, a selfie and then it re uses ai to recreate a full avatar of what you're supposed to look like and it looked so horrible it looked horrible and, and everyone was shitting on it of like how terribly uncanny it all was and it's just such a funny um contrast because because uh, talking about like not trying to go the full route of photorealism uh and and that being a benefit to just keeping it to cartoony uh real-time avatars it's just such a it's like the perfect Im implementation of of two companies approaching it from completely That's... different directions and and engineers uh, approaching this problem trying to solve it from a 3d perspective and, and i suspect that even people like us that have been you you know, so technically um, into this space, perhaps we have the wrong approach to these technologies and it, you need people from completely different industries to like to be given a technology like like facial mocap and be like, you know, what would you do with it rather than like, oh, we, we should recreate the full person avatar because that's what they want to be in VR. So you want to be exactly what you look like in VR or in real life in VR. And, and guess what? No, maybe we just need to capture the face and the elements, the important elements of the face and apply it to a lion's avatar and now you're aligned with vr like that's you know like that that might be the more important thing that that we will probably concentrate on in the future anyway that's the end of my rant <laughs> what i uh, experience with with face catcher especially uh even when i'm uh, like uh, giving a demo of 3d scanning and capturing stuff uh and, and essentially capturing people at like a trade show or whatever um it's very hard to get people to let themselves be scanned. The, the thing I always see is that like uh, 
female especially, uh, women are totally reluctant to letting themselves be scanned. Like they, uh, I think a photograph or selfie, uh, uh, why a selfie works maybe is because you can take like 12 and choose the best one and edit it or whatever. But the 3D scan is essentially uh, one step closer to uh, like reality. You cannot like choose your perfect side and shoot, always shoot that one because every side will yeah. be visible. Uh, so uh, I think people are a lot more, yeah, people are a lot more comfortable, I think, with creating like uh, uh, the the me version, like the Nintendo me version of their after, like, okay, pull a few sliders and maybe you can even do that with AI in a photo. Like, okay, I can recognize patterns like what you're saying in your face and I can generate a cartoony character that looks a lot like you, but it's not a photorealistic character. So... Because... Uh, Instagram is not uh, not is, is is of course a success because uh, and also Snapchat and stuff like that because of the filters that you can hide behind behind filters or funny rabbit ears or or sunglasses. You have control. Yeah, you have control as to what is being posted, uh, what you're posting about yourself, and you're right. It, it takes all those 10, 12 different selfie shots to find one that puts you in the best perspective. And it's so hard doing that, or it's impossible doing that when you it is a full 3D capture. No. And then there's the privacy thing. Yes. Like facial capture and like biometric information and cloud services. And especially now that we're moving into here in, 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 uh, uh, in Europe, we're moving into the area with new laws and the GDPR oh, and stuff yes. like that. Like all kinds of scary privacy laws mm. and, and like services like that. Uh, will have a very hard time, like especially like cloud-based facial recognition generation services, will have a very hard time uh, even existing when those laws uh, go into uh, uh, get affected, like next week or the week after. Yeah, I mean, um, like biometric face data. Yeah, I mean, it's it's happening right now. I mean, in Germany, you have a test with uh, basically police uh, using cameras on a main station in one of the cities to see if they can detect uh, people. There is some European um, movement uh, in the parliament, I think, towards basically this biometric scanning to, you know, to unite databases to make sure that everything is trackable. And uh, I mean, it's not only the European Union working on it, it's also Facebook, Microsoft and Google and Apple working on exactly that, uh, just for different reasons. Uh, they want to understand uh, space and they want to show you ads and not catch you because you stole Snickers, right? But um, I mean, coming back to this um, technology and control, I mean, there is a reason why Samsung's uh, selfie mode comes uh, with um, a face improver. So when you buy a phone from Samsung and actually tr make a selfie uh, without turning it on, it's already turned on automatically. So there is like a face uh, smoother and eyes are bigger and whatever. And it looks fascinating because you, you're basically not relying on the quality of the camera, but you're relying on, on the quality of the algorithm smoothing your skin. And I mean, there is definitely a difference between me perceiving your face in real life and me perceiving your face on camera, because uh, I don't necessarily rely with my eyes on a manual color correction or detail correction or whatever. My brain does it automatically. When you capture it on the screen, you know, my face starts to shine or you actually see those details in a face that you don't necessarily would see with your eye because, you know, 42 megapixels on a camera very close on a very bright screen are yielding more results than I can see from, you know, far away uh, looking at you in the street, right? Yeah, I read uh, an article, I think, uh, last year uh, that stated that, like, especially in, in Asian markets, uh, like, there are 
very few selfies posted on social network that have not been like through an algorithm that corrects certain things. And I, I think that trend is uh, moving towards uh, uh, Europe and the US now because it's so easy to uh, to add a few AR uh, uh, optimized uh, effects and make yourself uh, like look totally sh- smooth and stuff like that. So essentially when people uh, are posting selfies online that you don't really know uh, in real life, you wouldn't even That's such a great point. Them. That's such a great point. Because I think culturally there's like a big difference between in the West with something like that perhaps being considered uh, disgenuine, right? Or ingenuine, uh, because you think you're, you're, you're fooling people into being prettier than you are. But perhaps in like in more Asian countries, that is just a, or, or, or it's an accepted form of like how you present yourself, right? If you're not using those filters, like, Two that, different things. like are you, it's, it's like almost like not putting makeup and walking outside, right? In the West, it's at this point, it is now a, obviously a very accepted thing for someone to do that but you know in other cultures it's probably it's still considered like a very like oh like what are you trying to do like attract people I, like I, I mean i come from russia and whenever i see russian women they usually tend to have a lot of makeup and it really intimidates me because i'm used to women not wearing a lot of makeup in germany where i'm living right so i go on the streets there's basically except for a club situation or some fancy dinner i basically never see uh, people having a lot of makeup on except when there are particularly those um, Caucasian or, or a Russian woman walking around and she just instantly hits my eye. But um, I have also an issue with me sending a lot of selfies as an emoji. So I, I kind of am lazy to find the right emoji. So I'm doing this silly face that I always think resembles this emoji. People are always not understanding what I'm, why am I sending so many selfies? So I was just, you know, I'm trying to make an emoji face. <laughs> and when the, no, the iPhone would actually make me in, into a more emoji uh, face, maybe it would finally hit the people. And um, yeah. Dude. Get an iPhone X because with the N emojis, you don't even need to send a full clip. You can do the face, that emoji face that you're trying to do, and then grab it and then drag it into, um, and drag it into the message. Uh, yeah, but and that's interesting. Apple being Apple, they now it's of course yeah. only the iPhone X that has this uh, uh, front-facing depth sensor, and uh, of course uh, Apple doesn't uh, just try technology for their most expensive flagship phone. No, but you can view so it at least in the next generation I, I read and the, the 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 new iPhone se2 or something uh, will probably have a face ID sensor and I, I totally expect every upcoming uh, lower lower uh, uh, iPhone to also have like front facing scanning and after that maybe even back face scanning it looks like, I mean, they're not using the face scanning just to do the emoji, right? It's uh, actually mostly for unlocking your phone and the emoji is more like a byproduct, uh, which is a very yeah. great byproduct. So I guess they will at some point. Uh, it's, a, it's expressive. Well, yes. Right. But it, it, these new these new, new technologies, yeah. it all... Well, yeah, with with mass production, right? It, things these components get cheaper, uh, but yeah, these all these byproducts have to come from a particular thing like security that it grows from. But that opens up a whole new, let's say, like platform and for opportunities for developers to suddenly take this new unexplored territory and build things on top. Yeah. And it's funny because we expected AR to be the outside facing, right? Like everyone's like, oh, iOS 12 is going to be like, oh, fully AR OS. Turns out it's all, all where everything is inward facing. It's everything AR to your face, at least for now. I mean, obviously yeah. there's... Um, 
yeah, there's that. That's an interesting, like, wrong prediction. I think that we all made. <laughs> I think these, these these sensors are expensive. Yeah, but I think the, the sensors will drop in price, and particularly when the developers will get hands on them, the market will create cheaper sensors. Will be more available. More will rely on them, and you will basically at some point have no choice but to get them. But you mentioned privacy at some point, and I tried this demo um, one and a half months ago at Max Planck Institute uh, in Tübingen here in Germany, where they basically have like 30 or 60 um, cameras that they film you while you're jumping and moving around on this platform. And then the algorithm not only generates out of this two terabytes per minute data stream your um, photogrammetry and your 3D model, but it can actually remove the clothes from your body. And it can, on, it can only not remove the clothes from your body because there's a model of your body, but it can change your body in a way that you suddenly have more uh, or a bigger belly or a smaller belly, more muscles, you're higher and lower. And it looks totally natural because it can even make those tiny movements of your um, skin and the little fat you have under it when you're swinging your arms, right? Adjust in the right way. And I think when we have those sensors in every device and you're basically walking around, someone could hijack your system and basically apply the same algorithms they're developing right now that are still very computational heavy. And at some point, you know, from the 3D scan, and you mentioned, you know, women are sometimes a little bit hesitating doing it, right? And also men, um, can, they can basically create a 3D structure of your body uh, without the clothes on and actually put you in a 3D porn. So we have right now this case where people are using deepfake algorithms as like a huge issue where people are projecting faces into a video of a pornography from a celebrity and it's like a huge scandal and it's like terrible. Okay. But I think this is not the final uh, form of it. I think at some point you might even basically substitute people in a movie or render them very realistically into a way and then suddenly you can show someone, oh here, here's a guy who robbed me. You just walked and just completely fake because you recreated this whole video. So it might also have a certain danger towards it, right? Yeah, I, th I think in general, um, uh, especially the, these uh, video manipulation technologies uh, will at another level of uh, 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 disabling like uh, the masses of knowing the difference between what's real and what's fake especially with news and uh, because we still think that uh, photos are easily manipulated. I think that's a thing that, is, that has now been accepted. Like we all know that every photo of a person in a magazine has been photoshopped yes. because we can do it ourselves on our iPhone. So we know how it works, but very few people know that the exact same stuff is possible on, uh, on video uh, sources. And the next step is that it's now also possible to do it on video in real time. So you can do it with live news feeds, manipulate them in real time, or maybe with a few seconds of offset and do the, the same things that you would do yes. on a magazine. Look, the iPhone is doing your face into a pic, right? Or into a poo emoji, but who prevents the iPhone from doing this with a model of a real human face, right? I mean, it models the face anyway, so you could technically do it instantly, real time, similar as you would do with the Animoji with just a real face and basically broad stream as the face of Obama or broad stream as the face of Putin into a television and saying, okay, I will now, uh, you know, stop, uh, whatever, basically announce something and it will totally look realistic, yep. right? So how do how yeah, can we trust and, reality? And, and nobody knows what's real anymore. Yeah. How can how can we? Trust? All right. Well, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna offer a counterpoint to this and 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 to to show that humans aren't the worst thing in the world. Yes, we are. 
essentially somewhat evolved monkeys, but we always go back down to the most monkey thing ever, which is like sex and, you know, sa- satisfying those needs. And, and of course, the first implementation of, of what fake, uh, deep fakes get used for is for porn. That makes sense. We're monkeys, whatever. However, people like in general, I think use technology beyond porn to make so much more culturally relevant content. And then now at this point, they have now been expressed in the forms of memes and memes are a huge, huge factor in, in our culture. And, and what the other thing that, you know, it got deep fakes got popular for is for putting Nicolas Cage into every oh, yes. movie, into every role. <laughs> yeah, it's it hilarious. Yeah. And guess what? That's kind of, that's, those are the implementations that like end up becoming the, the, the most relevant and most well-known. And of course we will hear about the porn out. Uh, applications and like you know be outraged by those as well but like there with these technologies there's so much that happens when they're released out into the consumer public and people do and people are creative for whatever reasons right they want to be famous they want to make something interesting or they want to make porn and let's back our episode with us anyway let's i mean it's basically what's so let's actually mention the episode we recorded with asad and asad or Oh, Assad. Yeah, it's a strange <laughs> right, name for uh, episode, but it kind of also uses uh, 3D scanning technology, right, for our purposes. Yeah, he's referring to, like, two episodes ago, we had a f- AR filmmaker on the podcast talking about doing volumetric captures, uh, volumetric video captures of uh, certain people and, and, and how, how an interactive film ha- happens in augmented reality. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, we talked about this a little bit there. But, anyway, guys, we're running low on time. Let's wrap this up. Um, Nick, how can people find you? How can people find your blog? And if they want to contact you about any of these things that we talked about, how, how can they do that? It's the three, it is 3D scan expert on, on, on anything. So it's either 3D scan expert.com or at 3D scan expert. So, uh, I've, I managed to claim it everywhere. <laughs> so just Google it. Awesome. And. And for everyone listening, uh, if you want to find the Research VR podcast, uh, you can find us on Twitter at ResearchVRCast. You can find us on Facebook at ResearchVRPodcast. Oh, you also, if you like listening to this podcast and you want to give back a little bit, because we've been doing this all with no ads, with no sponsors for the past like two, two and a half years, you can uh, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, you could find it by either Googling Research VR Podcast um, or actually all of these links will be in, in the description as well. Uh, I want to give shout outs actually to our page Patreons. Um, give me a second pulling up their names for the people that have actually supported us already. We are up to 10, uh, 10 patrons already. I think it's, we've been out for about a week. Okay. I got it. And I want to thank our patrons, Hector Mondragon, Hypno Zero, Jesse Benson, Ken Harper, Mark Gillis, Nima Caspian, Nicole Aptekar, One Third Blue, that's you, Angela, and RBS and Rob K. Thank you all so much for supporting us on Patreon. Um, I will keep, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if we'll be doing new uh, lists of patrons every week. I, I don't know if we're getting that many patrons every week. But if you become a patron, you will be mentioned on the podcast and you will be thanked personally. 
recently by both of us. Thank you all for uh, supporting us. And uh, and you ha- if you haven't already, f- uh, join us on Discord, the uh, community where we actually have real-time discussions about these episodes. Uh, sometimes before the guest comes on or af- afterwards, we have a lot of the episode discussions in there. And Nick, we invite you as well if you want to join a group of uh, VR developers, academics, researchers, and also just enthusiasts. Uh, that's where we are. We're almost at 100 Whoa! people on Discord, actually. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. It grew pretty quickly. Um, so, yes. Thank you all again for listening. Thank you, Nick, for joining us. You're and, welcome. Uh, this has been a really great episode. Yay. Thanks for having me again. 